When we arrive at our glorified state, what will that be like? What will life be like when the curse is finally lifted? Pastor Phil shares his thoughts on this as we continue our study in Revelation chapter 22. Let's listen. And so, you know, we're trying to understand with our finite minds what this is going to be like. We have no capacity right now to understand. This may be a hyperdimensional thing. Heaven might consist in different dimensions all at the same time. How do you describe that? John's doing his best, all right? And so am I. But he goes on to say something else that has caused commentators fits. The leaves of the tree, the tree of life, were for the healing of the nations. Help people that wait a minute, time out. Are you telling me there's going to be sickness in heaven? I mean, is that, what, is that what it's saying here? Well, the Greek word translated healing is therapia. We got our word therapeutic from that Greek word, and it's true in Greek that word could be translated healing, but it could also be translated life giving or health giving. In other words, it doesn't mean healing from sickness, but rather a maintaining of health. In fact, the original language also implies through this word uh, a, a level of exhilaration and invigoration. One commentator said the leaves of the tree can be likened to supernatural vitamins. Since vitamins are taken not to treat illness, but to promote general health, life in heaven will be fully energized, rich, and exciting. Now, it doesn't actually say we eat these leaves, but it's implied, right? And I don't know if there's something about this tree that we're all going to just kind of, you know, as we're walking around and talking, picking the leaves off the tree of life and eating them. And this is going to promote just not only well-being and eternal health, but that sense of, you know, isn't it, won't it be nice to not feel tired anymore? <laughs> oh, won't that be great? I mean, think of the best time you've ever felt, like maybe you had a day, you know, where you just felt, oh, wow, I feel energetic. I feel, oh, I have a sense of well-being. Times that by a billion, times a billion, and that's every day for eternity. And so, you know, it's going to be pretty incredible existence. Well, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. John says there shall be no more curse. The curse was first imposed upon man in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit which God had forbidden them to eat, and at that moment they fell. Uh, they not only fell in the sense that their fellowship with God was broken, but it set into a motion a whole bunch of physical laws. We talk about the law of entropy. The law of entropy basically says that everything is growing old and wearing out and 
going from life to death to decay, etc. Well, the entropy law will be completely repealed because it was attached to the curse. Now that the curse has completely been abolished, and during the millennial kingdom, the curse will be greatly restrained. I mean, in other words, it'll be backed off quite a bit. But death will still be, although rare, in the millennial kingdom, which means the curse is still there. In the eternal state, it's removed completely, which means there'll be no more death, nor decay, no growing old, no wearing out, etc. Jesus alluded to this in chapter 21, verse 5, when he said, Behold, I make all things new, forever new. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a car in heaven? I'm sure there won't be, but where it never gets old, it's always like the day you bought it. Nothing will ever wear out. I heard one pastor on the radio talking about this and saying, you know, in heaven, somebody wants to borrow your rake to, 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 to rake their garden. Can I borrow your old rake? No, you can borrow my new rake because <laughs> it never is going to grow old, you know. So Jesus is going to make all, you know, how, two things, okay. You say, well, why does the city have to be so big, first of all? You know, do you get excited about real tiny things or do you get excited about really big things? I mean, well, you know, when you come, you know, when you come to one of the things we love about Chicago, it's big. You know, you go to O'Hare Airport. It's big. You know, I've flown into some little airports and it's like, this is it. I mean, you know, there's not even a Starbucks in here. You, you can't have a you can't have a real airport without a Starbucks. But something about, you know, when they, when, they, when they play the Rose Bowl and they pan that, oh, that stadium, 80,000 people or maybe 100,000, I don't know what they, you think, that is incredible looking. That's why the New Jerusalem is incredible in size because it's, that's just, man, you know, to, to see something like that. And then, of course, everything being new all the time. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I like new stuff. Sometimes I'll throw away good stuff that's old just to buy new stuff. I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, we don't all need the kind of clothes we buy. Some of it's perfectly fine, but we'll give it away because we want to buy a new shirt. What was wrong with the old shirt? It was perfectly fine. Yeah, but I want a new one. And that's kind of how it is. But in heaven, you won't have to worry about that because it's always going to be brand new. And John goes on to say, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Interesting, the word for serve there is a form of a Greek word associated with worship. You know that? In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in the New King James Version, it says, Paul speaking, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The word service there is a form of the same Greek word in Revelation uh, 22, verse 3. Now, Paul says, this is your reasonable service. The um, NASB, New American Standard Bible, translates Romans 12, 1 this way. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, listen, service of worship. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, why is that different? Because they're trying to capture the exact meaning of this Greek word. It's a word that's associated with service and yet worship. Think of the Levites. This word, uh, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, about 270 B.C., called the Septuagint version, uh, it used this Greek word to talk about the Levites. The Levites served God in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were the ones that 
get cleaned up and 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 made sure the the wicks of the menorah were were trimmed and the oil was in the cup so that it never went out and 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 they served the Lord there in the tabernacle later the temple but their service was always associated with worship right in heaven we're going to be a kingdom of what priests everything we do for the Lord is going to be a form of worship and I got news for you we're going to have plenty to do in heaven for the king you know, God made us with the, with the need to be productive. A person who is not productive does not feel useful and will not enjoy life like a person who is productive. That's just the way God's wired us. So the idea that we're going to be in heaven sitting on some cloud for eternity playing a harp, first of all, that's not even, that's not even biblical. There'll be some of that, no doubt. But I'm just saying that, you know, we are going to be productive in heaven. We're going to be serving the king. He's going to have plenty for us to do. And and let me tell you this, none of it's going to be tedious, boring, or done grudgingly. None of it. Everything we do for God will be done out of a heart of extreme joy as an expression of our worship to Him. And by the way, not even that's going to wear out or grow old. Remember how it was when you first got saved and started coming to church? And man, the worship and just the fellowship and just the Word of God, it was all brand new. You couldn't get enough, right? But then after a while, things get familiar. And they get kind of, you know, where you're used to them. And that takes a lot of the joy and excitement away many times. But in heaven, everything is going to be new all the time. Everything you do for the Lord is going to be like the first time you're able to serve Him. Every time you open your mouth to praise and worship Him, it's like the very first time. I mean, it's going to be an incredible experience. You will never get tired. Nothing will be boring. Nothing will be tedious. Oh, do I have to serve God again today? Nothing like that. We'll be lining up. Lord, send me. Let me go. Let me go. Oh, he went last time. I want to go, Lord. You know, and we'll just be fighting over serving the Lord. And he said, well, what are we going to be doing exactly? I have no idea. I wish John would have given us a little more here. Uh, We'll find out. I mean, we're going to be going on on missions for the king, maybe different places in the universe. I don't know what we're going to be doing, but we're going to be doing things, okay? Verse 4, And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. Speaking of the redeemed, of course, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I love verse 4. They shall see his face. Didn't Jesus promise us in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Right now, our relationship with God, I mean, we, we, we see him through the lens of the word, But, you know, we're here in the physical, he's in the spiritual, and, you know, it's like we see him, but not really. We we, we have to to, to see him through the lens of Scripture, but then face to face. Awesome. David said in Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Of course, David was talking about resurrection how that someday he was going to be raised. And when he is raised, he was going to see the Lord face to face. That's the same thing Job said, right? 
He said, you know, I know my Redeemer lives and someday he's going to stand upon the earth and I know that even though this body dies and even worms consume my flesh, I know I'm, you know, I'm, it, with my own eyes I'm going to see him. He was talking about resurrection. Same thing. Now it says that his name shall be on their foreheads. God's name is going to be written on our foreheads. And by the way, you only write your name on your stuff. You don't go into your neighbor's garage and write your name on his lawnmower or his weed whacker. Get in trouble that way. You only write your name on your stuff, the stuff that belongs to you. And we belong to God, and he's going to write his name on us. This was uh, going to be a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 12, where he said, He who overcomes, and whenever you see he who overcomes, he's talking about true believers, those who have true saving faith. He said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. I will write on him my new name. Now, that's interesting. Uh, we're not quite sure what that new name is going to be, although in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it says, Now, this is his name by which he will be called, starting in the millennial kingdom, but probably into the eternal state, Jehovah Tisid Canoe, which means the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Tisid Canoe. So maybe that's the name we're going to have on our foreheads for eternity. Jehovah Tisid Canoe. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, won't that be a little strange, all of us walking around heaven with God's name written on our foreheads? Look, let me tell you something. Is it strange that people walk around with Calvin Klein written on their jeans? <laughs> or on their shirt? No, they wear that as a badge of honor, don't they? They want to be identified with this person, you know? Hey, look, we're going to wear that as a badge of honor. The, name, the fact that God wrote his name on our foreheads means we belong to him. I mean, I want to be identified, not with Calvin Klein or some other person. I want to be identified with God. That's the greatest thing you could ever have uh, written on you is God's name. Now, let me just say this. Somebody said, as the Bible opens with the story of paradise lost in the Garden of Eden, so here it closes with the story of paradise regained. Someone else has said, this is a perfect consummation. No more curse, perfect restoration. Throne in their midst, perfect administration. Servants shall serve, perfect subordination. Shall see his face, perfect transformation. Name on foreheads, perfect identification. God is the light, perfect illumination. Reigning forever, perfect exaltation. Now, you realize the book of Revelation technically ends here. The rest of the book is an epilogue. Remember now, the book of Revelation is sandwiched between two bookends. A prologue in chapter 1 and an epilogue in chapter 22 starting in verse 6. And they form kind of like bookends that this book is sandwiched between. But, you know, the rest of the chapter not only forms a phenomenal conclusion to uh, the book of Revelation, it forms a fitting end to all 66 books of the Bible. Isn't it interesting how this becomes really the, the final chapter, not just of Revelation, but you can see of the whole Word of God, really. It's as if God is saying to us, the Revelation is complete. 
You've, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Guard it well. Live it out. Declare it to those you come in contact with. But my word to mankind is finished. So it's something that we need to kind of take to heart. But starting in verse 6, we enter in now to the final thoughts of John as he's closing this book. Then he said to me, who is he? Well, he's the angel that had um, one of the seven bold judgments. We, we read about this angel earlier in chapter 21, who's talking to John now and showing him these final events. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. You know, you, you got to really kind of feel for John. Here he is, a first century fisherman, right? I mean, you know, he hasn't had the benefit of Star Wars or... Uh, some of the things we take for granted, the, the sci-fi uh, special effects things, right? Here's a first century fisherman who was taken to heaven and sees this panoramic vision of the tribulation period, of the millennial kingdom, of the eternal state. That's a lot for anyone to swallow, right? And it's as almost as if after showing him all this, the angel has to say to John, now John, look, put his arm around John, John, look, I, I know this is hard to swallow, but look, it's everything I've shown you is true. And God is going to be faithful to bring it to pass according to all that he has said in his word. It's faithful, John. It's true. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Everything I've showed you is going to come to pass. Verse 6, again, he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. When it says here that these things must shortly take place, it doesn't mean short in the chronologically. It means, the Greek word means rapidly. Same Greek word is repeated in verses 12 and then verse 20. And the idea once again is that once these events are set in motion, and I'm thinking, the angel was thinking primarily, I'm thinking of chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation period, that once these events are set in motion, they will happen with rapid fire succession in a short period of time. The Greek word is the word we get our word tachometer from. Uh, taku, which is a word, you know, the, a tachometer measures revolutions per minute of the crankshaft in a, in a car, uh, the engine. And so how fastly it's spinning, right? Well, what the angel is saying that when these things start to happen, it's going to happen in rapid fire succession until it's all finished. And again... He had in mind the seven-year tribulation period. Verse 7, Jesus then actually um, interjects something here. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He said, Behold, I am coming quickly, folks. That is not only the theme for the book of Revelation, but for our entire Christian lives. The implication is, I could come at any time. Be ready. Turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. I want to read you what Jesus said, starting in verse 32 of Mark, chapter 13. The Lord Jesus speaking said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, 
lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Wow. When Jesus said anything, you need to listen. If he repeats himself, you really need to listen. He tells us to watch three times directly, and the fourth is by implication. You think he wants us to watch? Think he wants us to be ready? You think he's told us enough to look for that that day should not overtake us as a thief? We need to be watching. That's the whole idea behind the book of Revelation. Prophecy is designed by God to tell you what's coming in advance. Why? So you can be ready and watching for it. That's the whole purpose of God telling you things in advance. That you might know he's God, first of all, because only God knows the end from the beginning. And he says in Isaiah that I'm telling you things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will know that I'm God because only I know the end from the beginning. Only I know what's coming in the future. Only I can tell you what's coming and be right every time. That's why if any prophet stands up in my name, God said, and says, predicts anything, prophesies to you anything that doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. One thing doesn't come to pass. They're a false prophet. Stone them. Of course, that was the Old Testament. Because God says, I'm not guessing. When I tell you things that are going to happen, I know exactly what I'm talking about. So watch. Be ready. Now, what does it mean to keep the words of the prophecy of this book in verse 7? Well, the, um, the obvious uh, meaning is to obey, right? Didn't Jesus start the book of Revelation off with similar words? Blessed is he who, who reads and who hears and does what? Obeys. And then he goes on, right? So when it says here, you know, that we're to keep the words of the prophecy of this book, obviously we are to obey whatever applies to us. That's first and foremost. But I think there's a, also a, an element here where he means that we ought to be guarding, watching over, and preserving what God has delivered into our hands. We know that from the very first time God gave his first words to mankind in the Garden of Eden, what did the devil try to do? He tried to come in like a serpent, and he tried to sow doubt in the minds of God's people, Adam and Eve, as to what he really said. He told Eve, did God really say? See? And there's always going to be attacks from the outside, outside the faith, trying to get us to doubt that this is really God's word, or did God really say this? But even in the Christian church, there are many people who have written Revelation off. We started off this study in Revelation telling you there are several major views. One of them is the allegorical view, which basically says none of this is literal. It's all just stories and allegories designed to communicate the classic struggle of, of good and evil throughout the centuries. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's ridiculous. These things must shortly come to pass. That's, you know, that's not allegorical language. Allegories don't come to pass. They just are stories that help communicate certain truths like parables. So we have to realize that we are living in a day when the word of God is, is, is under greater attack today than probably any other time in our nation's history. And it's all because we're coming to the end, folks. And the words of Jesus in Luke 18, 8 haunt me. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The faith delivered to the saints. So it's our responsibility to study it, to hold it close to our hearts, to live it out, 
by God's grace as best we can and to share it with others because only the Word of God is living and powerful. Only God's Word can change lives. Churches that downgrade the Word of God, that make it, uh, that explain everything away and it's full of errors, you can't build your life on it, we can't trust it, it's been corrupted. You, this, these are Christian churches. This is not the world talking. This is Christian, so-called Christian churches. It's no wonder there's no life in those churches. You're basically saying the Bible is dead. It's corrupted. It's decaying. But come on out and listen to what we have to say. Well, what's the point? Then they wonder, why is our attendance down? Why, why are we growing like that Bible-teaching church down the road? Because you're not teaching life. You're teaching death. The Word of God is living in power. But we need to, to, to maintain a high view of Scripture so we can share it with others. Well, verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. It was me. I saw it with my own eyes, is what he's saying. Remember, this got distributed to the churches of Asia Minor, and we think John may have been the bishop of the whole seven-church circuit in uh, modern-day Turkey. And so he wanted the people that he knew and ministered to, when they finally got this book, John wanted them to know, look, I saw this stuff. It was me, John. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. He said,